Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to share with you today. My dad's a preacher, but I'm not really a preacher. And, um, I have to speak at times because of our ministry. You know, we talk about our work in Chad and stuff like that, so I have to get up and speak to people, but I um, don't really enjoy it. <clears throat> um, just want to look at the the first slide. Got a just just got a handful of slides on a PowerPoint here. Thanks for people who've been praying for me during the week. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to see it up on that screen too, if possible. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I picked up a second-hand copy of um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which I had never read. I'd always heard about it, um, but I'd never actually read it. And um, it was a copy given as a first birthday present back in 1957. <laughs> of, you know, of all things, it's a... It's a fairly serious book, which um, which I wouldn't give to a one-year-old necessarily. But um, um, about a third of the way book, uh, I'm, a, I'm about a third of the way through the book, you have Uncle Tom, who's been um, sold, sold as a slave to the south from Kentucky, and he's on this riverboat. He's, 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 he's going down to his, his, his new position as a slave, in the south, in the deep south, and he's reading his favourite book up on up on top of the riverboat, and um, it says the book he was intent on was one which slow reading cannot injure, nay, one whose words, like ingots of gold, seem often to need to be weighed separately, that the mind may take in their priceless value. I like that quote. Um, the author is obviously um, obviously a Christian, and that reminded me of a favourite verse of mine from 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 Psalm twelve: "The Lord's promise is sure; um, He speaks no careless word. All He says is purest truth, like silver seven times refined." So, um, next slide. Uh, we've been looking at the book of Isaiah. And um, one of the summaries or commentaries I read made the statement that Isaiah is a book that unveils the full dimensions of God's salvation for his people. That's a pretty big statement. Um, but... But as you go through it, it's true. I mean, it's true chronologically. If, um, you know, in terms of the gospel, a summary of the gospel, I'm reminded of a passage like Ephesians chapter 1, where it goes from before the foundation of the world until eternity, and right in the middle is the cross. And... Uh, I think Isaiah does the same thing, and there's just um, a handful of verses I've picked out which 
which indicate that. Um, of course, there's many other aspects of the gospel which are also found in Isaiah, which we're going to be finding out as we go through the book. And um, just pray that it's a blessing to each of us as we go on this journey together. Um, a few weeks ago, I was walking east along Graham Road out at Kangaroo Ground with Amy late one afternoon. Um, Graham Road is a no-through road. It, it goes off the road that goes from Eltham up to Panton Hill. Um, we were intent on conversation and the view immediately in front of us and uh, we came to a motorist who had turned into Kangaroo Ground just to take a photo and he said he said to me it's a beautiful sunset isn't it and I made a kind of a throwaway remark something like yeah all the sunsets out here are beautiful um, and then I turned around and looked at the sunset this is not the sunset by the way it, it was it was a hundred times better than that but um it was simply breathtaking. Um, so I'd been walking along completely oblivious to this incredible view that was behind me. wasn't looking in the right direction. Then again, um, um, in a book I was recently reading, it says that sometimes it's our own activity that can prevent us from seeing what is actually there. And it gives this example. In January 1994, a pre-dawn earthquake cut power to most of Los Angeles. And the the Griffith Observatory there received many phone calls because of the strange things that people were seeing in the sky. Um, What they were actually seeing was the stars. So, you know, because there was no lights of the city to obscure the stars that were actually there. Stuff that stuff that people just hadn't seen, weren't used to seeing. So sometimes well I guess that's an illustration that sometimes we are too busy, sometimes too busy to notice what God is really trying to do. You, you know, He's He's trying to show us who He is, um, how He wants us to live. Um, he's trying to show us the reality that's out there. Uh, and we're just, um, I mean, we're just too busy. The, 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 the fog of human activity, um, if you like, obscures it. As, um, Raf was sharing last week, um, well, previous speakers have covered Chapters from from the beginning of chapter one right through to the beginning of chapter fourteen, um, and then there's this gap in the preaching. I'm um, I'm sure you've all noticed, which goes right to the end of chapter twenty one. So um, it's not because we don't think those chapters are important. They are they are they are very important, but just in the way that we've arranged the preaching. Um, we aren't actually preaching on them, so you'll have to read through them for yourselves. Chapters 13 to 14 concern 
God's word to Babylon, Assyria and Philistia. Um, chapters 15 and 16 concern Moab. Chapter 17 concerns Damascus. Chapters 18 to 20 concern Ethiopia and Egypt. And then chapter 21 concerns Babylon again. Now these messages um, aren't, um, aren't preached by Isaiah to those foreign powers. They are preached in Jerusalem to the people of Judea and they are preached to warn what will happen to those who stand against God, who don't put their trust in God, who put their trust in things other than the trustworthy God. So that's the background on those chapters that you have to catch up on yourselves. So we come to verse 1 of our chapter today. It says an oracle concerning the valley of vision, which is another way of referring to the city of Jerusalem. So in the middle of all these oracles against various surrounding nations, why is there an oracle against Jerusalem? And the answer is that Isaiah is addressing a less than obvious form of idolatry, that of putting confidence in ourselves rather than in God. Um, this, this chapter helps us consider the idol of self-reliant independence. What does it look like when God's people become self-reliantly independent? What lessons are to be learned and what warnings are to be heeded? So we'll be looking at these things as we go through this chapter. Chapter can be divided neatly into two sections, verses 1 to 14 and then verses 15 to 25. First half is addressed to the people of Jerusalem and the second half is addressed to two individuals, Shebna and Eliakim. So we, we find that we've gone from looking at the surrounding nations, um, and now and now onto the city of Jerusalem, it's it, it's getting closer and closer, and then and then we actually get individual. So the next um, slide, please. So I've 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 titled it self reliant independence, and those first fourteen verses are about human effort. The first 14 verses deal with the sort of self-reliant independence that looks to human effort. Um, and when I was reading this um, a few weeks ago, um, I could see this this kind of a mirror reflection in the passage and um, from my from my Bible translation experience, I thought this looks a bit like chiasmus, and um, and I looked it up. You know, I, I I googled it, and it it told me that 
there are perhaps 81, um, 81 instances of chiasmus in the book of Isaiah. So, um, so obviously it was a way of, um, of, um, of, um, of presenting an important message. So if you look at Psalms and the songs that are sung and the poems that you can read there, you have this, you have this structure of chiasmus, which is inverted parallelism, inverted parallelism, and it's also there in Isaiah. It's uh, one reason for it being considered something of a literary masterpiece. So, um, so in the first verse, you have the the oracle or the word of the Lord. Um, then you have this idea of um, of a city full of noise, uh, a wanton town, kind of running riot, and that is reflected back down towards the end of that passage with uh, with with the feasting and the celebration in verse 13. Um, and then there's this theme of weeping, which comes out in verse 4, and again in verse 12, and then the intervening verses in the middle um, speak of the day of the Lord, what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. So in those first couple of verses, um, verses 1b to 2a, you have this um, this great celebration on the rooftops. Um, and, uh, and a commentator said that may have been due to um, news of a short-term victory of deliverance for the people of the city. We know that the Assyrians were around about. Um, they were up in the northern kingdom of Israel. They were in the surrounding nations. They were attacking Judah as well. Um, and we know that at least in one instance, um, they were about to attack Jerusalem and then they were called away because um, because there was an army from another nation that came through nearby, so they they had to go and look after that problem. So the people, the 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 people are all up on the rooftops celebrating, having a good time. But um, but Isaiah's reaction is that uh, he sees the utter destruction that is going to come soon after. And so he experiences inconsolable grief. That is in verse 4. Therefore I said, turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. Got a, the next slide, please. What... what um, why do we weep? We weep for many reasons. I've been thinking about this during the week. On um, we um, heard the news on Tuesday that the 
the president of Chad was was killed up in uh, up north of Chad with with some um, in some fighting with rebel forces that had come down from the far north and um, uh, while while I wasn't particularly weeping in my heart for the president of Chad um, we have been praying for him but um, it's because of the turmoil the the turmoil that it could cause in the country um, so uh, as far as the organization we work for over there SIL it was on this situation is on the top of the list in their contingency planning the death of the president you know what what is going to happen because he's a man who's been in power for 31 years um, he just won his sixth term as president and um, he 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 goes up to the battlefront and gets killed so what will happen? There's no real, there's no real succession of power, etc., etc. So that was heavy on my mind. Um, yeah, Thursday morning, um, I was sitting in the car in queue while Ellie was at an appointment, and and I, um, I was just crying, you know. And there was also work things that. There was also pressure of work, stuff happening at work that I wasn't getting my head around. So different things were going on at the same time, which were, which were causing an emotional response. Um, yesterday, I was on a bike ride um, uh, um, up along the Warburton Rail Trail. There's a picture from that. And uh, we, we went past this little place which looked like it had just been a railway siding, Westburn, and they had a little avenue of um, trees there. Um, there, were, there were 18 trees, and um, they, were, they were all men from the First World War, young men who had been killed in action. And um, there was two from one family, two from another family, four from one family, so... You know, you, you think back in situations like that, um, not just for the sadness of the situation of men dying in war, but what happens when the news comes home and the grief and the, the grief and the mourning that, that causes. We weep for many reasons, you know. Um, you all have particular reasons um, but uh, I believe here that the prophet weeps because the Lord weeps um, not just for his people either um, if you look back in chapters 15 and 16 where you have the word against the nation of Moab, um, you read in chapter 15 verse 5, my heart weeps for Moab. And in chapter 16 verse 11, I will weep, weep, weep for Moab. So 
God just doesn't weep for his own people. He's also weeping for those nations which must go through all this time of judgment. Now, now in particular for Jerusalem, judgment, judgment comes because the Lord's protection has been removed from the city. So that's in verse 8a. Um, God, God removes his protection eventually and that, and that judgment comes. Nothing will stop it. Verses, um, verses 8b to 11 describe feverish activity. You can, you can see what the, what the people of Jerusalem were getting up to to defend their city. Um, it seems like they were stocking up on weapons, making sure they had enough to defend themselves. Um, they were fortifying the walls of the city. They were even sacrificing their own houses so that the walls of the city could be strengthened. And also they um, they had made uh, this tunnel through the rock from a spring so that they so that they could have access to fresh water during a time of siege. Um, this is a, a, a very famous tunnel. It goes for 533 metres through solid rock. It's in the shape of an S, um, and it has a fall of just 30 centimetres over that length. And um, And apparently, according to an inscription... The men uh, dug the tunnel from both ends and they met in the middle. So they were very skillful guys. So they were doing all this stuff. Um, and yet, verse 11 says, uh, but you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. Um, they were... Doing stuff, doing stuff, doing stuff, feverish activity, but but eventually it would be to no avail, because ultimately they weren't looking to the Lord. And um, the people's reaction, uh, the people's reaction is to go on partying, basically in verse twelve and thirteen. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth, to see. But, but see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. So, um, So the Lord was looking for a genuine turning back to him, symbolised here by weeping mourning, shaving the head, wearing sackcloth, 
but true repentance was missing for God's people. They were partying when they should have been uh, weeping and showing signs of repentance. We note that um, you might remember that the Apostle Paul uses this this verse about uh, um, about eating, drinking, and being merry in in one Corinthians fifteen thirty two. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay, so um, if Christ is not raised, if we have no hope, um, if we have no hope beyond the grave, then we of all people are most to be pitied, but uh, Christ is risen. Um, so these these people were living as if there was no tomorrow. So, um, how are you thinking about these verses? What's the application for us as the people of God? Um, sometimes just when things seem to be going really well, it's when we need to be beware of self-reliant independence, of just going it alone, doing it in our own strength. Um, yeah, yeah um, I guess beware of trying to make things right with God by our own efforts. Which is, which is, which is typically what religion does. So you can have all the, the things going on in your church, um, all the programs and activities, um, stuff that looks good, but, um, is there, uh, uh, is there that reliance on God, that humble dependence on Him? Is there that prayerfulness? Jesus withdrew to quiet places, to mountainsides, to a garden. He is our perfect model of dependence on God, even in the busiest times. It says in Isaiah chapter 66, uh, verse 2, This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So for the people of Jerusalem, probably the important verse, um, the important verse which, which describes their attitude is verse 11, but you did not look to him who made these things. But for me, the uh, um, in terms of understanding God's character in all this is found in verse four and verse twelve. Let me weep bitterly. Um, he calls us to weep. So we'll move on to um, 
The next slide, that one, yeah, verses 15 to 25. And here it talks about two individuals in particular. So um, we have Shebna and Eliakim. And you can read about them in, for example, 2 Kings chapter 18 and a bit further on where it goes into this story in detail or else later on in Isaiah in chapter 36 and following. And um, that's when the Assyrian supreme commander comes with a large army from Lachish in Judah to demand the surrender of Jerusalem. And it is Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, who go out to talk with the Assyrians. Um, they are the ones who return to Hezekiah with their clothes torn as a sign of distress. Hezekiah's reaction is then to tear his own clothes, put on sackcloth and go to the temple. And he sends Eliakim and Shebna to report what has happened to Isaiah the prophet. So we have two men um, who are both impressive individuals, both high officials in the civil service of King Hezekiah, but uh, they seem to be impressive for different reasons. Um, if you look at verses 15 to 19, um, Shebna is seen as someone who is self Self-important, he's self-sufficient and self-seeking. In verse 15, though he is a high court official, he is addressed as this steward by Isaiah. In verse 16, we see a man who has sought to literally carve out a place for himself in posterity, to have a tomb amongst kings, if you like. He wants to be remembered. In verse 18, a man who loves to ride in chariots, etc., but is called a disgrace to your master's house. There are many people like this in the world today, um, which the world even looks up to. But... Uh, but then we have a danger, don't we? Um, if we aren't controlled by the Spirit of God, then we go there too. You know, we can just as well have a problem with pride, vanity, self-importance. We need to be beware. But Eliakim, um, he's completely different to Shebna. Um, we read about him from verse 20 onwards. He is God's man and he has God's mandate. He is called, commissioned and authorised by God and made secure by God. Note, I will summon my servant in verse 20. I will clothe him with your robe, in verse 21. I will place on his shoulder the key, in verse 22. 
I will drive him like a peg, in verse 24. He is a trustworthy man and people trust him. He is like a father, like a peg firmly driven into a wall that you can hang your entire weight on. And you will have noted that uh, the Apostle John quotes from verse 22 in Revelation chapter 3 where he says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, what he opens no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open. It's a messianic reference. While Shebna is clearly contrasted with Eliakim, look at what verse 25 says. Um, In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and will fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut down. The Lord has spoken. Um, So even though... Um, even though even Eliakim is God's man um, and he's pleasing to God, um, even one day he will lose his position when the day of the Lord comes. This reminds us of the danger of being reliant on impressive men and women of God rather than on God alone. Perhaps it's easy to see right through the people who are like Shebna, who put themselves forward, who are pompous and arrogant, etc. Um, and it's very easy to put our trust in someone like Eliakim um, rather than Emmanuel, who is God with us the one who holds the key. These days we can listen to or follow any number of impressive individuals, those we regard as Christian role models. The resources available to us are immense, but don't let that be a substitute for trusting God. Don't be tempted to say, As long as this person or that person is around, we'll be all right. God may be wanting to do something new. Who are the key individuals who have helped you be who you are in Christ today? A work colleague of ours shared the other week how he had recently met up with an old university friend who had a major influence on him becoming a Christian many years ago. Oh, I don't believe that anymore, he said. What a shock if you had placed your trust in that person more than in the Lord. The Apostle Paul was an impressive individual And he said, and you should follow my example just as I follow Christ's. 
1 Corinthians 11, 1. Good Christian role models are extremely important. For example, the mission statement of Young Life, I'm sure there are many others who would be the same, is to build confidence, (coughs) values and resilience in Australia's young people through significant relationships with adults who model the love of Jesus Christ. It's so important that we have godly role models and that we are trustworthy men and women of God within our community, within our church. Ministry is often built on interaction with godly role models and that's a good thing, but beware. We need to be on our guard. Not only being aware of what's going on around us, but most importantly, guarding my own heart. As it says in Proverbs chapter 4, above everything else, guard your heart. Fix your gaze on what lies in front of you. Deviate neither right nor left and keep your foot far from evil. Perhaps it's a reminder that we need to be accountable to each other in more personal ways and above all, to be the person that God is calling me to be like Christ. Remember chapter 7 verse 9 of Isaiah, without firm faith you will not be firmly established.